Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. (laughs) We are back once again. Once again, we're back with the Bronte novel for you. Yeah, I don't know what it is with us in the Bronte novels, but for some reason that has been uh, of interest lately. And just so you know how we generally pick our topics, it's simply by fortuitous accident and ideas and things that we have chats about and, I don't know, stream of consciousness, really. For Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre, certainly, they're just such major classics that I've always intended to read and never had before. And they're ones that I had read in the past and multiple times and loved. And you'll see, uh, we're going to refer you back to our episode on Wuthering Heights. That episode, or those episodes, how many were there? Three. I don't remember, but we talked way longer than I even imagined we would about that novel and about Emily Bronte and the Brontes in general. So I'm going to refer you back to that episode for the history and a more in-depth conversation about the Bronte family and the ins and outs and the things that happened to them. And I'm going to really try to keep the discussion of Charlotte Bronte's life tight and just really mostly what's germane to the book itself rather than uh, giving you a long disquisition about their family, which we've already done. Okay, so referring you back to Wuthering Heights and we're going to move forward, plow ahead with Jane Eyre. So I read Jane Eyre first time when I was uh, in high school, actually. And loved it, of course. I mean, I think Jane Eyre is the perfect high school book. It's so romantic. It's got a lot of the it's got a lot of the passion of Wuthering Heights, but it's tempered. And maybe I loved Wuthering Heights more because I was in high school when I read it and you know, I thought I was dark. You know <laughs> I was dark. I was wild. I was passionate, right, in my mind. And <laughs> so I liked that one better. But now I really uh, Jane Eyre, I It holds its place in the canon rightfully after rereading it, and I do like it better than Wuthering Heights um, in my more adult mode here. What about you? I mean, I would say that Jane Eyre is overall kind of a healthier book um, (laughs) and is so foundational and really has the bare bones of so many other romance novels that have built off of it. So like if you read it early, then you'll really get to the source material. Would you agree, or like you know more about the history of literature and stuff, would you agree and say that Jane Eyre really was the place that a lot of those romance tropes that we see originate? Seminal, yes. I'm sure scholars can go back and go, well, we can see the root of this or that. There were, at the time, very famous female novelists, like 100 years even before, who basically kind of created the novel, female and male, I guess. Okay, I was just going to digress into Samuel Richardson, but I will not, so... I'm going to stop there. Okay. I'm reining myself in. But this book is seminal because it brings everything together. It was extremely popular, continues to be extremely popular. And you just see it over and over and over again in in movies. Even, Even as it goes out, like, you know, it hits the water and the ripples go out and they get a little fainter and wider you still see that influence even if it's faint in everything and it it comes directly it's really the 19th century version of pride and prejudice which is a seminal in that line of romance totally and they're, they're similar in certain ways i think particularly the male protagonist being sort of difficult yeah totally and Jane Eyre is a little bit freer in terms of movement and space than Pride and Prejudice right because Pride and Prejudice is confined to conversations and chaperones and stuff like that well that's not true there's some people riding horses all over the place and going places but yeah the visible action is Mm -hmm. much more so in Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights but the the main difference between the two that I see in terms of the the dynamic and the the pattern it creates is that in Jane Eyre 
there's an immediate attraction between the two characters and it doesn't deviate and she just kind of grows in her love even though she's not sure and it's outside forces it's the social forces and the the existence of the wife and convention and so forth that seem to impact the development of the character's relationship whereas in Pride and Prejudice it's true there is a lot of social convention and a lot of social framing but that actually doesn't seem to be impacting the characters as much as their own characters are mm-hmm. there's the pride and the prejudice and so they're operating within this frame but they don't need to break out of the frame or right. even consider breaking out of the frame because they're uh, even though he's higher level than she is she's definitely within his sphere of choice if he decides he wants to marry and he is within hers so it's really about their personalities and their characters Whereas this is, yeah, character comes into play, but the thing that's driving their conflict are external forces. That's yeah, you're right, which I think is interesting. We, we'll talk more about like feminist aspects of the book and stuff, but the concrete like material realities of their lives really are very important, which I think is cool and interesting. And I think that one of the reasons that this became a progenitor to so many books from my point of view, again, I'm older than you, so I really am I'm coming from an older generation's idea of romanticism and what masculinity should be and what is attractive in a man, I think, than your generation, or at least your type of person in your generation. For sure. And that is that we have Jane, and she's our anchor, she's us, and we look at her and she has an inner life. She has a personality, she has a certain strength of character, but she also has an uncertainty and an unsureness and also a societally enforced meekness, if you will. I don't think she'd be that meek if uh, if society hadn't required her to, to mold herself that way. So, okay, and I can see all of that in myself, but then there's Rochester and he's, okay, he's not super tall, but he's big and he's strong and he's and he's intense and he's... Ah, ruff, 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 you know. (laughs) He'll sweep you up in his arms and the wind blows in his hair and his cape flows behind him. And so even if he isn't particularly handsome, he's clearly got a ton of attractiveness in that really kind of traditional masculine, when I quote unquote masculine way. I think that that is extremely appealing. So what do you, I mean, from your point of view, what do you think of Rochester as a... As a hero? Um, well, I think we'll we'll talk a lot about the interplay between him and Jane, and so like you know, no, just on this one point. Um, okay, on his attractiveness, yeah, I think so. I mean, I I'm not straight, but I still really enjoy like a super masculine person. Yeah, and and he's not bad. He's not toxic. You can totally like go. Oh, yeah, I'd like to experience some of that. You can have a lot of opinions about Rochester, but at the same time, in his the way he is interpersonally, especially with Jane, like he really is. He invites. A pushback and a back and forth and stuff like that. Yeah. And so that's I think that's a key trait of non toxic masculinity is that it allows room for a back and forth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's strong and he doesn't allow that to hamper the the power of his whatever you want to call that. I, masculinity is one of the words, but mm-hmm. uh, that the power of his personality, the power of his desire and his drive is not hampered by the fact that he's also got a certain openness. Right. I guess, and if you say uh, Jane is indecisive and stuff, like Rochester has a lot of clarity. Yeah, yeah. He's got extreme clarity, and so right. that's also very attractive. And Jane's yeah. always kind of weighing things and trying to figure what's right and yeah. what she wants and so forth. So we're kind of really getting diving right into it. So let's backtrack a little bit and just do a tiny bit of setup. We're going to assume that you've read this book. 
uh, rather than give you a real in-depth description of the plot. We'll give you a, a little bit of a one just to kind of feel like we're all oriented, but we're going to assume you've read this. And also by assuming that you've read this, we will talk about every aspect of the plot and what happens. So there will be spoilers. And I think it, it's interesting because you go, oh, well, it's old enough, so you should have spoilers. I think that there's a, there's a sweet spot where spoilers are, shouldn't be an issue if you're going to read it because it's old enough that people should have read it, but it's not so old that generations have come who would not have read it yet. You know what I mean? So it's sort of like it's so old now, you kind of want to be careful if you're trying not to spoil something because there are a lot of people who haven't read it. That's true. Because yeah. it's so old, right? Yeah. You hadn't read it until now. Right. I'd only seen a movie version, and so I did know the... The spoilers the of the plot. Yeah, well, that's but. a good point, too. Probably anybody's seen a movie of it, so they'll, they'll know the basics of the plot. Maybe. Not everyone, though. I don't know. A lot of my peers don't have a very good sense of what Jane Eyre is. Well, really. this will help them out, then. Yeah. Hopefully they'll listen. Okay, so uh, I just wanted to give, give everybody that caveat first and say that Charlotte Bronte, I'll just give a few basic facts about her life, and then we'll just move on so you get... So we'll kind of feel like we're grounded. So Charlotte Bronte was born into the family of a uh, Anglican pastor, uh, Patrick Bronte. And actually, I don't know if you know this, but their original name was Brunty, B-R-U-N-T-Y, Brunty, oh. which kind of sounds very kind of, uh, you know, like Yorkshire yeah. yeoman kind of name. Brunty, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. You know, and they changed it to Bronte with the with the double. With the like, umlaut. umlaut. Or I don't know if it's that. Yeah, I don't know if that's actually. I mean, it looks like an umlaut. It's the same punctuation. I don't know if it is an umlaut. You know, but yet yeah, into Bronte, and so Patrick Bronte and he married Maria Bramwell. And we will see this coming up in the novel, these issues of uh, class disparity. He was a poor clergyman, did not have hardly any money. She came from a nice, wealthy family. And when she decided to marry him, she was cut off completely. But they loved each other so much that she gave up all the wealth and comfort of the world to be with him. They had six kids, and Charlotte was number three. And there were five girls and one boy. And the two eldest, Maria and Elizabeth, who are older than Charlotte, they died early in their teens. And then Charlotte, uh, therefore, she became the eldest, if you will. Her brother Bramwell became addicted in so many ways. Uh, alcohol. Gambling. Gambling, drugs, you know, morphine and that kind of stuff. And then she had the two younger sisters who are also almost equally famous, Emily Bronte of Wuthering Heights fame, and Anne Bronte, who wrote The Tenet of Wildfell Hall, which I actually enjoy that novel. I, I don't like her writing nearly as much as her sisters, but there is a really good BBC adaptation of The Tenet of Wildfell Hall that I liked. And so you can partake of it and not have to spend as much time reading it. I shouldn't say that. And Bronte people are going to be so mad at me. I'm so sorry, guys. But that's just how I feel. So Charlotte was born in 1816. And she died in 1855, just short of her 39th birthday. The cause of her death was probably uh, like eclampsia, which is she was having like really, really bad vomiting and nausea because she was pregnant because of her pregnancy. That often is caused by or accompanies really big problems with your blood pressure. Mm. Uh, that's that's kind of what they think. Nobody knows for sure, but they're they're. They link it to her pregnancy. So she died, which is really sad because she just really got married to this man. Um, his name was Arthur Bell Nichols, and he was a curate for her father. And her father had prevented her marrying him for a while because he didn't approve. I mean, he couldn't, like, actually 
actually prevent her, but he, that was prevention enough for her that her father didn't approve of it because this guy was really poor. Well, by this time, come on, Dad. Charlotte, yeah, I know. Hello, <laughs> and maybe maybe part of it was protect. Isn't that funny? It's, yeah, it's, but, it's very often that parents want to protect their children from the very things that they have done in yeah, their youth, right? Because his his wife died. Uh, his wife died. Maria. Mm-hmm. She died uh, after she'd given birth to those six children, but very early, very and very young, and. No one really knows what it was. Some people say cancer. Some people say it was some kind of aneurysm. But she seemed fine, and then one day she just kind of collapsed, and then she died within a few weeks and or a few days, and no one knows exactly what happened. But it was a huge blow to Patrick, to her father. Anyway, he prevented it for a while, and finally, I guess she got his acquiescence in it, and she married him. The other thing is, is she was a famous novelist by that time and made a lot of money. So money really wasn't an issue, except in their minds at that time, because the man had to have the money. So anyway, so she became pregnant very soon after that, and then she died, which is, yeah, it's, it's all kind of sad, especially since uh, she'd lost her mother, and then she lost her two older sisters back when they were teenagers, when they were, and Anne was very young, like five years old or something, when, when her old, eldest sisters died. And then after that, in 1848 and 1849, within eight months of each other, her brother Bramwell, Emily, and Anne all died. That's so, I cannot believe. Like, boom, I'm sure boom, boom. Happened to a lot of people at the time, but still, it's just so many, like, kind of mysterious deaths or, like, you know, well, and remember, sudden deaths. What, when we did the Wuthering Heights podcast, there, what that came up is the fact that they were in a, uh, at Haworth, they were in a little, at a house next to a graveyard, and those graveyards were like overpopulated because they were running out of space, and there's so many decaying bodies in there, and the water source that they used ran underneath the <sighs> graveyard, it was like a what subterranean a thing, to their well, yeah. and so they were getting probably a lot of uh, mm, bacteria. Microbe, yeah. Yeah, really be- microbes and bacteria in their water as well. And they kept saying they all died of tuberculosis. So, and of course, there was a lot of tuberculosis a lot around. But at the same time, you kind of wonder because you go, well, it's very contagious. But at the same time, maybe it was something else. I mean, their medicine was just so rudimentary at the time. They couldn't figure it out. But there was a lot of death. There's been a study done. And the, the death rate in that area was so high per capita. And again, go back to the Wuthering Heights episode. We talk about that in more detail. But anyway, boom, 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 they're all dead. And this, uh, I mean, unbelievable. Talk about having your your sense of your own mortality. (laughs) No kidding, which is really contributes to these books. It does, it really does. And uh, so basically in 1848 and 1849, she loses all of them. And then she get, gets married and pregnant, and she dies in 1855. So out of the entire family, the only person left is Patrick Bronte, oh who's like this old guy. <laughs> it's really old so guy. bad for him. Know, he's just sitting there all by himself. <laughs> Unbelievable. So I don't know. He had some kind of special immunity going on. Anyway, that's the, the basics of her life. Can I ask a question? Yeah, if I can answer it. So Charlotte Bronte, she and her sisters published their novels under pseudonyms. Mm-hmm. 
um, under the name Bell. So she was Currer Bell, mm-hmm. right? So was she a famous novelist known as Currer Bell and presumed to be male? Or at this point, did people know who she was? Well, that's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, sort of timeline in that there isn't like a definite mark when she became outed as a woman but yeah she published her book under Currabelle and it was as ostensibly as a man so some people thought she was a man but then there were rumors going around that it was a woman and ultimately uh, she became known as a woman and then and we can talk about a little bit about the critical reception based on that there isn't a definite time where she was specifically outed but then she became known as Charlotte Bronte and she became friends with Elizabeth Gaskell and um, William uh, Makepeace Peace Thackeray's daughter and hmm. she became known in the literary circles personally so people knew that she was a woman so basically they had a lot of poverty a huge amount of poverty and the sisters were always trying to figure out what to do so they went out as governesses not Emily because she couldn't handle it. She couldn't ha- handle it. They went out as governesses. Charlotte taught at a school for a while at Rowhead. Um, they tried various things to make money. So finally they said, well, uh, let's open our own school. That didn't work out. Nobody signed up for it. So they started writing. And that's when they wrote their first book of poetry, which 15 or something copies sold. This is really sad. And they had to pay for it, too. They had to pay right. for the publication. And uh, then they kind of broke apart, and they each wrote their own novel. And both Emily and Anne got published before Charlotte did, which I think kind of caused Charlotte disheartened, disheart- well, disheartened, and maybe jealous, yeah, a little bit hostile, perhaps. So they were more popular more quickly than she was. And she had uh, written a book called The Professor, which didn't get acceptance, and she couldn't get it published unless she wanted to pay for it herself. So that didn't go. But she buckled down, and then she started on Jane Eyre. And she wrote Jane Eyre, and it became very quickly accepted. In 1847, she got it published, and it became a hit. But all of the books that the sisters wrote were criticized for being coarse. I I think because they tended to be both very emotional, very passion-based, especially Wuthering Heights, on one hand, and very, I think, honest and realistic about the difficulties and problems that women faced that women, particularly in the middle class, faced around their inability to make a living, their inability to support themselves, their dependencies. And in uh, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall with Anne, yeah, there's a lot of emotion, but there really is a lot about the fact that this woman is yoked to a drunkard, to a a man who uh, is abusive, to a man who spends all the money and there's nothing left for her to support herself and her child. And that in itself is just putting that out there was considered to be absolutely beyond the pale. So these were very controversial books. And as I was saying, what happened is, is that when it became known more generally that the uh, author of Jane Eyre was probably a woman, then it became more coarse and more unacceptable. And there was more criticism against it because it wasn't written by a man. Because to that kind of content written by a woman is that women weren't supposed to think those things or feel those things. It was very challenging to people, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But women were supposed to be the angel in the house. And we did talk about Patmore Coventry, the poet who coined that phrase. Then this ideal woman. Uh, we do talk about that during Wuthering Heights, I believe, don't we? I think we've mentioned it a few times yeah. throughout. Because it's our... so irritating. Yeah. <laughs> and then we all always have to mention once again, uh, read the essay, A Room of Her Own. Right. By Virginia Woolf, who uh, deconstructs that that angel in the house. Subsequent to 
uh, the publication of Jane Eyre, Charlotte went back to writing and she wrote Shirley and that got published in 1849 and then Viette was published in 1853 and I've read all of her novels and I don't even really barely remember any of the other ones. They were kind of a slog to get through. I didn't think they were particularly interesting or good. There's some people who really like them and and appreciate them. I don't so I'm not going to really talk about them. I'm not interested in them and I don't feel that they are, if I was really going to do if this podcast were about Charlotte Bronte, yeah, we would have to have read them and go through them and talk about them in in uh, her oeuvre and her life. But we're we're talking about Jane Eyre here, and so I just want to stay focused on that. Yeah, that I sounds about right. I didn't want to put you through it. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> you would have done it though, because you're a good daughter. <laughs> but it would have taken about six more months. Yeah, I so. know. We never would have gotten to it exactly. Okay, so diving into Jane Eyre. Oh, I should, oh, before we go on, I just should say, then The Professor was published posthumously. So go ahead. So I I do think we should give, like, the barest rundown of the novel, which is... Do you feel up to it? Up to it? I think I can do it. Go, girl, go. Okay, so Jane Eyre is a poor orphan whose parents, much like Charlotte Bronte's parents, had a situation of a well-connected woman marrying a um, man of the cloth and then they are very poor together and cut off from the family and then they die. And so she relies on her rich relatives um, who support her and hate her and denigrate her and her her um, cousins who beat her up and stuff. And yet she is a spunky child and eventually speaks up against the injustice and her aunt, I guess, is like, you're a horrible child and I should have never kept you in my house and I'm sending you away to a boarding school, which is essentially like a charity boarding school. It's very poor. It's very cheap. Lowood. Yeah, called Lowood. And so the head of the school comes and takes her away. She has a best friend, Helen Burns, who dies young. She leaves the school eventually after becoming a teacher there, becomes a governess in a rich man's house after advertising. And it turns out that she's supposed to be the governess for his ward. And then he turns out to be Mr. Rochester. They fall in love. Uh, They're going to get married. Turns out that he has been hiding his prior marriage all this time. His wife lives in the attic and she is a madwoman who uh, is homicidal. And this ruins the chances of their marriage. Jane Eyre runs away. Uh, She meets her cousins and stays with them for a while. Eventually, she goes back for Rochester and finds that the house is burned down and the wife is dead and they can be reunited. Ta-da! How was that? That was good. That was good. Yeah, we can get into some details around those things as we talk about the book. So I guess um, as I was reading the book, the one thing that struck me that reading it again with a lot more experience in reading and a lot more uh, understanding of prose under my belt now, so many years later, is that this book is almost like sort of a layered strata of sort of a Anne Bronte, Emily Bronte. There's the wild, passionate, poetical, gothic, gothic kind of, uh, and then there's these really grounded, strong psychological and sociological insights that she makes about uh, this woman's place. Because Jane, she's poor. And she comes to this house where there's this rich man who falls in love with her, and she's hot for him too. So, I mean, that's there's a mutuality of feeling, but there is not a mutuality within society and within the moral strictures of society or within the economics of society. And it's so interesting because I didn't notice this when I was younger, when I was reading it. She's always considering those. It isn't just 
oh, I'm mm-hmm. in love with him and I'm going to fling myself at him. And oh, and there's religion. And so because of that, I can't sleep with him without marriage. And which is how I remembered it. And really, that's how a lot of the movies and shows present it. But there's a really intricate interior analysis and yeah. dissection of her relationship to him in a very practical way that she's not going to give herself over to him sexually without marriage because he has a pattern of being passionate about women like with Adele's mother the his ward he never really admits that, that the child is his but it seems pretty clear that the child is his and that he had a passion for her mother and then of course the mother was cheating on him and he got mad but he had a lot of other women, too, where he talked about them, and he would be passionate about them and shower them with gifts, and then something would go wrong. And then he would reject them and abandon them. And since he had this pattern, and she saw this pattern, even though this love is supposedly special, mm-hmm. she sees that pattern, and she goes, I can't, she can't give over to him until he's married her. Otherwise, he, the, the taste, his taste for her will become jaded, and then she'll be in a position of being really screwed because... She'll have nowhere to go. And now she's a tainted woman. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of very, an easy reading of it. There's also like a whole religious layer. So I guess there's a Patrick in there too, but. But um, they don't really, she doesn't mention that. Yeah. That's what I'm about to say is that it's couched in a lot of religious language, but it's not really moral. Like her, her concerns aren't moral. It's not like it's wrong. I can't do it. It's more like it would be impolitic for me to do it Mm -hmm. because I would be putting myself in a dangerous position. Right. And, um, and, and socially too, like she's not saying like, oh, it's flouting convention. I can't do it. It would be wrong or anything like Mm -hmm. that. It's kind of like, she's like, do I want to be rejected by society? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. considering those types of intricacies. Yeah. So there, there is that as you read it, you'll see that very, uh, acute analysis of her position as a woman in society and also the psychology of a relationship and how, and you read so many books where, oh, there's this special love. And therefore, that transcends any kind of personal issues. Yeah. yeah and any character flaws, you know. <laughs> so there's going to be this perfect um, uh, fidelity and, and so forth. And she knows that that's not this guy. She, under- she actually understands him mm-hmm. and protects herself against his flaws, which is very... I don't know. It's, it's very, very modern. Yeah. It's yes. Even, even beyond modern because a lot of modern novels are just trash, you know? Yeah. <laughs> too. Yeah. And there's also, um, the other thing too is, is her gothic, full-bodied, po- poetical um, flights are never as high-flown as with Emily. Right. So, for example, there's a scene where, as a young girl, uh, gets into a conflict with her cousin. He throws a book at her head, which you mentioned. And by the way, they believe that that scene comes from re- real life, where she had been a mis- uh, uh, governess. And this little boy said, his last name is Sidgwick, he took a book and threw it at her. Hmm. Maybe, sounds like he hit her in the head. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that they think that came from uh, something she experienced but by a nasty little boy uh, in her care. Uh, she screams and yells and she becomes that person who's really expressing her indignation and, and protesting. And she gets hauled off to the red room. And the red room is where her uncle died because she's actually related to the man who died, the uncle. And the woman who's now caretaking for her is her like aunt-in-law. And she gets locked in there and she's terrified because this is where her uncle died. And she begins to see ghosts and see visions and hear sounds. And you don't know, is it all in her head? Are there really ghosts in the room? And it's, it's very effective because you're in her place 
and you're experiencing it with her confusion. Whereas in Wuthering Heights, there are a lot of ghosts and sounds and so forth, and those are real. They're not in somebody's head. This book is also suffused with like fairy tales and ghosts and supernatural things, but it has a much clearer sense of di what's distinctly reality and what is questionable. Yeah. yeah, and it can be emotional. And, and they also could be real. There also could be a uh, an intuition or a psychic ability on the part of this girl, but she leaves it like in a modern way. She never explains it. She never comes down one way or the other. And it, it's not really, I don't know, I don't feel like it's really suffused with it. I feel like it pops up here and there, whereas Wuthering Heights is definitely suffused with it because it's in everything. Yeah. Is that that's, fair? That's fair, yeah. yeah. But it does pop up strongly in Jane Eyre from time to time. For example, like when they first meet, she and Rochester, she's walking down a misty road and he's riding his horse and the horse sees her and rears up and he falls off. So that, that's not really mystical, but it, she couches it as if it were, as if Jane Eyre is a figure rising out of the mist. But it's very grounded, very real, and it really could happen. But from Rochester's point of view, this is kind of like a weird mystical apparition that comes up, and as soon as he sees her, there's this connection between them. So that's really more the way she's using it. The one time it is out and out. Really calls into question. Really mystical, and you, we don't know what it is because... There are many people who have said that, that this kind of thing has happened to them. And that is when Jane is living with the Riverses, who uh, she they discover her, they save her. And then of all the people in the world, the people who saved her end up being her first cousins. <laughs> I don't, you know, anyway. So back in those days, apparently, in England, first cousins could get married. So the man of the family, St. John Rivers, he just, he's pressing her hard to marry him because he wants to take her to India to be his helpmeet in his missionary work. Because why? Because uh, she was made for labor and not love, which uh, is a direct quote. Uh, terrible, terrible. Anyway, Awful. we'll talk more about St. John. Anyway, he's pressing her and he's really, she's not just reluctant. She does not want to marry him. And she knows, again, like we said about Rochester, she analyzes his character in a very modern way and understands what position she would be putting herself in by marrying him, that she would be under his thumb and that he's a vindictive bastard, even though she doesn't say it that way. Well, she keeps saying he's so such a wonderful man. He's and a so great pure. man. He's a great, right. Not wonderful, great. Right. <laughs> as in terms of his greatness as his principles and his mission right. to be a missionary in India and so forth. Anyway, and but that because she's resisted him, if she marries him, she's going to pay for it later. And she says that. Out and out. But again, he's pressing her so hard. And, and Jane, as a person, seems to need, even though she's fairly strong inside, she seems to need the ballast of family or really a man. Let's, let's just be honest about it. She needs a man to be her anchor and keep her stable. The thing is, is the right man is Rochester to keep her where she can be safe, where she can make choices that are healthy for her. And Sinjin is not, but she doesn't have Rochester at this point. At this point, Rochester is lost to her because he's married to somebody and she ran away and she doesn't know there has been a fire. She doesn't know he's needing her. But all of a sudden, as Rivers is pressing her to his bosom and she's giving in, all of a sudden she hears, Jane! Jane! <laughs> in Rochester's voice. And we learn later that at that very moment, 
Rochester in his, the agony of his soul, as he's thinking about Jane, he goes out loud. Yeah. Jane! <laughs> Jane! <laughs> and somehow she hears it hundreds of miles away. Right. And that gives her what she needs to just fling everything aside right, and she say, just I'm pushes, coming. pushes aside from him and just goes, man. Yeah. She goes. I think she says something like, and now I was in my power and the moon was high and yeah. it's so honestly. Right, exactly. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that or non-feminist about the fact that, I mean, we all need people. And sometimes it could be a man needing a woman or a woman needing a man or or a, 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 a queer person needing a, the right person for their romantic anchor and that's what you need other people you, you need your children or 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 you, or you could be a person who, who has to have all of that in place but there are very few people who alone can stay anchored i don't see that as necessarily non-feminist so that is one of the places where um you go well could that have been real I mean, what is that is that her mystical thing but hey the evidence within the novel itself is that it was real and also, I think that there's so many people who say they just knew when somebody had died or that these kinds of things have happened to them because of whatever, the, how things fell into line and the connection that they had with that person and so forth. I'm willing to buy it. I go with that could be real because it's the only time in the novel it happens. It isn't like it's happening all the time, like she's some psychic. For me... This book especially like kind of escapes for me the bounds of like what's diegetic and what's not diegetic. Like it doesn't, Mm. effectively it doesn't matter. I've read in the criticism people criticize various parts of the narrative for being both unrealistic and kind of like, I guess opportunistic on the part of the author Mm -hmm. or like saying like Charlotte Bronte. Yeah, okay, she just had Jane run into her first cousins because that's what the narrative required. Right, Like, you know, because it makes it easy. Um, And for me, the book really transcends that and it doesn't really matter because, for example, you know, even if it's extremely unlikely that realistically she would have encountered her first cousins or whether you agree that there's a, a real tangible supernatural element or not, it is the fruition of the themes of the book. Mm-hmm. To express those things like she finds her first she finds her real family members because of the the arc of her character and her personality has come to the point where she she basically has found a home you know, a home over the course of the themes does that make sense yeah she's ready she's ready right her character is developed to the point that she's ready to be part of a family be part of an extended family kind of right thing. and so i think um because it's a piece of in my opinion great literature it transcends whether that is unrealistic coincidence is like yeah. yeah fits into the narrative of you know realistic or not doesn't matter to yeah. me in this piece of work right so how does that apply to the jane jane because that's really what we were talking about not the the getting together with the, the the cousins which is kind of weird and but that wasn't really mystical it was more coincidental and from the way i look at it but um the jane jane i think fits in with what you're saying because there is this part where in the novel, mm-hmm. she and Rochester, regardless of the fact that there are still flaws and she still does have to be real uh, pragmatic, it's got the great balance of the pragmatism with the romanticism mm-hmm. and the fact that they have a soul connection. And they've each, in their separate stories, uh, come to the point where they could actually have an equitable relationship. Right. And so, you know, it could just, you know, just, they say that he called out the window at that exact moment, but, it, you know, thematically, it could be her heart suddenly being like, I must go, you yeah. know, or whatever. So, well, I think that, and I, but I think that just sticking with what's in the book, because I like what's in the book. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I want it to be, you know. Sure. And that is that you're right. Her heart was ready, 
and she was ready. And basically, Sinjin Rivers had beaten her down so much emotionally that she was actually ready to, to crumble and say, okay. And that actually was the opening for her to be able to hear Rochester and to know that she could go back. Because she went back not knowing that the wife was dead. Right. So she went back maybe with the attitude of, of she didn't say whether she was going to be his mistress. But she's definitely gone back to, I have to be with him. Even if it was ill-defined or undefined or she hadn't decided yet. Because nothing had changed in her knowledge about what was right. with, with Rochester. And points to the fact that she has become in and of herself, somehow reached that ability to be independent. Be herself. Yeah. Because, and that's one of the biggest themes in the book, I think, is that from the very beginning, she's a passionate child. She's a wild child, meaning that she actually has a flipping opinions and actually wants to stand up for herself when she's being abused and is not going to take it. So she's not the angel in the house where she's just there to serve other people. To be an obedient and docile child or whatever. Can we say her, our favorite child jane quote oh yeah and actually i wrote it down do you, do you have it memorized it's when she's talking to um her aunt-in-law and the director of the school mm-hmm. and they're going to take her away and her aunt-in-law says yeah she's a liar and stuff treat her poorly and the pastor says okay she yeah. must be a bad child yeah and so she she says this is a partial quote here which i thought was so funny and this shows a lot of the humor mm-hmm. the very sawtooth edged humor that bronte brings to this she must have been pretty sharp conversationalist in her in her day i think so and i think she was pretty tough the dialogue in this book is really excellent anyway basically they say that she was an ill-conditioned child who always looked as if she were watching everybody and scheming plots underhand abbott i think gave me credit for being a sort of infantine guy fox (laughs) 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 this is very funny and if you um for anybody who's just not really familiar with English history, Guy Fawkes was the guy who um, became the figure of head and the picture of the this plot that was uh, supposed to blow up the Houses of Parliament by putting gunpowder in the basement. It was a foiled plot. And so Guy Fawkes Day is a big holiday in England for anybody who doesn't know that. I feel like um, most of the listeners will probably be familiar with that, or the younger ones, because of the movie V for Vendetta. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, um, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but that was actually not the quote that I was going to oh, recite. Okay. Go ahead. Um, this is this is something that Jane also says during that conversation, which is um, they they put in most of the film adaptations and stuff as well. Mm. But the head of the school says to Jane, like, "Do you know what it means to go to hell?" Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And she says, uh, "Yes, sir." Like it's full of uh, fire and brimstone. And he says. Like, do you want to go to hell? And she says, no. And he says, what must you do to keep yourself from going to hell? And she says, I must keep in good health and try never to die, sir. <laughs> Which I think it's very funny. And it's really a snapback to him. But because of the times and because of her religion, Bronte couldn't own that. And I noticed that she kind of backpedals a little in the book by kind of saying that as a child, she really thought that that was like a sincere answer. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, that, that wasn't... <laughs> a sarcastic It wasn't of... sarcastic. Yeah. <laughs> and so by doing that, the, the author disowned the sarcasm. But I think the, the author's uh, intent was to be very sarcastic there. Yeah, it's very clear. It's very good. Yeah, they, uh, thanks for remembering that one, because that is one, one of the most classic quotes in the whole book. Right. Yeah, that's so good. How do we get on that? I forgot where we are. We're talking about the spirited young Jane. I think you're. Oh right, about. and the theme, and the yeah, and so that shows the theme of the early times when Jane, she was so self-directed, and 
throughout time what happens and and this is why i hate helen burns in this thing (laughs) so she ends up getting uh, carted off to lowood school where it's so poor and they have like one cup in the whole school or something and they pass it down the t- in the morning everybody gets a sip of milk and they just pass it down the table so no wonder everybody's getting sick at this bloody place right but you know in those days they didn't have any sense of germs so they didn't know they were passing tuberculosis to each other through this cup or, or whatever it was <laughs> they were getting but it was cold and poor and everything but she did find this one friend helen burns who is in the movies and in the adaptations she can go be somewhat religious, but she's always just generally really sweet and really kind of angelic and otherworldly because you know she's going to die. I mean, you see and you go, that kid's going to die. That's a red shirt right there. Right. <laughs> she's out of here. But her, her purpose is to anchor Jane and give Jane a little love and friendship, which she does. But in the book, oh my God, she is the most evangelical, proselytizing little prig I've ever met. I hate this kid because it's just like, oh, you just have to accept. And I mean, it's fine if, if Helen wants to do that. You just have to accept. You just have to lie down. You just have to understand. You just, and it isn't even a it isn't even a plea for compassion or for Jane to grow spiritually in terms of standing up for herself, yet also not hating, also not being hateful to people or judging them as bad but still standing up for herself. It's more like, don't stand up for yourself. Just accept it. Just knuckle down. You have to learn to be calm. You have to learn to be these things. And so rather than it being, okay, pragmatically, Jane, you need to learn to be calm so you don't get smacked and you don't get punished. It's more like in order for your soul to be good and for you to be worthy, you need to lay down and take this stuff. So that, and specifically in the book, that's when Jane's free spirit and her self-determination and her individuation ends up being subsumed into this angel in the house idea. And so she's always lecturing Jane. I mean, there's not a scene where she's not lecturing Jane about how she should give over. Then Helen dies. Right, so that she's enshrined as a kind of a martyr. Right, uh... and she becomes the beau ideal of Jane, right? And the problem is throughout the entire book, Jane can never attain that because that's not who she is. That's who Helen was, and that's fine, but that's not who Jane was. So the entire book is her finding her way back to who she really is, yet tempered with practicality and maturity and compassion. Mm-hmm. And so as we go through, I think it's when she and Rochester collide is when that ideal angel ends up becoming threatened and by, by Rochester because of his passion and because he wants the honesty and because he knows she's in there and he's digging for her. And he does a lot of kind of shitty things yeah. <laughs> to her in order to kind of like shake it loose, trying to get in there and trying to get to her to, and I mean, and get to her in terms of wanting to meet her and, and have her come out and be with him for with who, who she really is. And I think that that's, uh, that's really the trajectory because then she goes back, back to the challenge from the, the rivers. So she's challenged by Rochester to open up and to let herself be who she is fully and then she ends up going to the riverses and so the value of her her discipline which is not a bad thing but the self-discipline and the practicality and the ability to work is valued but the other part is not valued so it's the two parts of her that we're developing and um, so that rises up and the passion goes down so it's kind of like a teeter-totter in, in her character. And you and you see it because she talks about her internal process. And then finally, when that Jane, Jane comes through, as you were saying, the call of her own heart, 
but also the call of Rochester, when she gets back there, all of a sudden those two pieces come together and she's both. So yeah. there, there are a ton of themes that run through this, but because, especially since it's a first person novel, that to me is the theme. I feel like it's excellently executed. Yeah. yeah. And that's why, again, it's another reason why I think it became a seminal work for later authors and a whole genre is because it is about something that's universal and it's also for men too i mean men have the same every human being has the same individuation and search for self kind of process and so it's relatable beyond the social and economic and uh, gender i did really like the writing in this book generally speaking i mean there were a few things where i'm like okay come on but generally unlike wuthering heights where I thought the writing was uneven and sometimes compelling and other times dull and florid. I found that uh, Jane Eyre, even though it is the old timey writing, because of the modernist point of view and the real poetical hand that sometimes you could bring, that I enjoyed reading the writing sometimes a lot, just for itself, beyond the themes and the characters and all that stuff. I mean, much like human thought process, for example, when Jane is really thinking and feeling through something, it can kind of get long and circular and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But but at the same time, there's always interesting insight in those in those times enough to get me through. And then there are other parts that really are very beautiful and very evocative. Um, I think one of my more favorite passages that's popping into my head right now is when um, Jane's rival Blanche Ingram uh, comes into the story oh, yeah and she starts to hear about this woman who's like really gorgeous and amazing and um, Rochester's supposedly interested in her and stuff and um, and she's rich and high class right exactly um, and and it turns out that Rochester is using this woman to kind of make Jane jealous or make her decide you know mm-hmm. if she wants to be with him or not and Jane decides she's trying to she's trying to quell her own feelings and so she she paints these two portraits and she paints one of herself and one of her idea of what Blanche Ingram is so like herself and then this ideal woman and like that whole passage I don't know I really like it kind of stuck with me yeah and the way she psychologically I mean that that would be something that that your therapist would give you to do right <laughs> I mean, not not to put yourself down or but but it's that kind of exercise which is really interesting and it is compelling about mm-hmm. how she her internal process I also liked a lot of the um, the way in which she ties together very tightly the uh, the description of maybe the external situation with her internal experience. There's a, a little description that she has. She says, she was trying to forget the cold which nipped me without and the un- unsatisfied hunger which gnawed me within. I mean, that's really completely evocative, poetical, beautiful. And yet, I mean, I feel that. And then there was one bit where she she talks about a precious yet poignant pleasure, pure gold with a steely point of agony. It's pretty good. That's She's good. got a very visceral feeling. Yeah, I, I really, I really think so. And then I had a few other, um, a few other things that I, I just marked because I thought they were so wonderful. The other thing too is is, is her sense of humor. Like the, with the the quote you you uh, shared, and then the one about the guy Falks, and then there was another one uh, that she did that I thought was really funny. In fact, I think you and I talked about it. So this is where she's being quizzed by the head of Lowood before she goes there. It's part of that conversation, and and she says, and the Psalms. I hope you like them, he says, and she says, No, sir. No, 
Oh, shocking. I have a little boy younger than you who knows six psalms by heart, and when you ask him which he would rather have, a gingerbread nut to eat or a verse of a psalm to learn, he says, Oh, the verse of a psalm. Angels sing psalms, says he. I wish to be a little angel here below. He then gets two nuts in recompense for his infant piety. (laughs) (laughs) Infant piety. God. And I thought, um, anyway, I thought that that was very, very funny. In his infant piety. And then she has it coming out of the mouth of Brocklehurst. That's the name of the the head of Lowood. And so, but she has that that funny phrase coming out of his mouth, which makes it funnier. It's very satirical. And she she pokes at the religious figures in this a lot. Oh, she does. Yes, she definitely does. Oh, and this, the other uh, piece of writing that I thought was very powerful, I was surprised because normally really intense florid emotion, I kind of sit back a little bit in it. But right after she finds out about the wife being in the in the attic and sees her and knows that everything is an end, she's in her room and she lies down on her bed. I mean, she's just, it's the biggest loss she's ever had in her life. And she writes so beautifully that I really felt, I, I, and I feel like Charlotte must have experienced this because she, she hits it so perfectly on the, on the head. She says, It was near, and I had lifted no petition to heaven to avert it. As I had neither joined my hands nor bent my knees nor moved my lips, it came. In full, heavy swing, the torrent poured over me, the whole consciousness of my life lorn, my love lost, my hope quenched, my faith death-struck, swayed full and mighty above me in one sullen mass. That among the whole thing, I read that and I'm like, I feel that. Someone can say doom hanging over you or something, but it that really touches sort of a, a physical register. It does. It really does. So unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, it seems like we have a lot to say. To say, but that's because it's such a great book, mm-hmm. and it really offers a lot of, of material. So we're going to have to end it here and uh, have a part two. Yep. See you next month. <laughs> oh, guys, thank you for sticking with us. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Great.